Welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. In this episode... A part of being exposed to tremendous scale of human suffering and mortality can make people question the value of life and what their work is about and can lead to the significant burnout and survival guilt that can also result in the increased risk-taking and unsafe behaviors. Professor Elena Sharapanov on Ethical Dilemmas in Global Mental Health. Hello and welcome to the BJ Psych International Podcast. My name is Sachin Shah and I am a general adult trainee working in London and I am joined by... Hamilton Morin and I am an FY1 doctor working in London. And today we will be discussing an article in the November issue of the journal entitled Ethical Dilemmas in Global Mental Health. Hamilton, what is this article about? Well, the article discusses the practice of global mental health and how workers navigate the ethical issues raised within this. To quote from the abstract, global mental health specialists conduct research and provide psychosocial and mental health support to populations affected by humanitarian crises around the world. This work exposes these specialists to situations with a high degree of moral ambiguity and no good solutions, where humanitarian accountability takes priority over conflicting values. Self-awareness helps to address the counter-transference that confounds complex decision-making and can compromise the health and safety of all involved. The evolving role of global mental health as a humanitarian actor underscores the importance of professional competencies in assuring the integrity and standards of practice. And that is a somewhat academically heavy concept to get my head around. But thankfully, we'll have the article's author, Professor Elena Sherapanov, to talk us through it later on. I appreciated her trying to explain it in ways that I guess are more digestible for a general audience. But before we get to that interview, Hamilton, shall we lay the background for this article? Gladly. Professor Sherapanov defines global mental health as an area of study and practice that aims to improve mental and psychosocial well-being of populations affected by international humanitarian crises and support psychological recovery. She notes that the humanitarian context of global mental health distinguishes it from proxy disciplines such as international psychology or cultural psychiatry. Non-governmental organizations have been recognizing the need to attend to mental health needs in emergencies since the early 1980s And in more recent years, they have been incorporating specific approaches for both survivors of sexual and gender-based violence and for complex emergencies. International mental health programs expanded in the 1990s, and by 2012, Médecins Sans Frontières staff had held over 190,000 counselling sessions in places such as Iraq, Congo, Kashmir, and Sudan, Darfur. Workers in this humanitarian context will participate in emergency response, disaster relief, helping both local populations and aid workers, and thus get exposed to complex challenges and witness mass trauma and suffering, which increases the demand to make ethically sound decisions in extreme circumstances. Decisions are often made under stressful conditions and need to be made quickly, often in unsafe environments. So there is a need for a framework to go by when faced with ethical dilemmas where there is no ideal solution. The moral burden placed on global mental health workers 
can also impact their own mental well-being. Seeing wide suffering and trauma in a disaster area can affect a person's worldview. This is in addition to experiencing safety and health risks, work stress involving funding and politics, and bearing the weight of difficult decisions. Having a sound values-based framework ensures that workers prioritize their own safety and self-care to ensure they remain fit and able to practice. Within the article, Professor Sharapanov discusses how ethics can offer professional grounding and offer a frame of reference for practice that is consistent with humanitarian values. Professor Sharapanov has previously described the main goal of humanitarian work as to prevent or alleviate suffering, and that nothing should override this principle. She describes the fundamental principle of humanitarian response, that all humankind shall be treated humanely and equally in all circumstances by saving lives and alleviating suffering, while ensuring respect for the individual. She also notes in the article that the professionalization of humanitarianism prioritizes accountability, which is understood as responsible use of power and resources. She previously wrote that accountability is defined as balancing the needs of stakeholders and a commitment to providing assistance and using power responsibly. For more on the ethical dilemmas that global mental health workers can encounter and the values-based framework that can help us navigate them, we spoke to Professor Elena Sherapanov. I am Elena Cherepanova. I'm a clinical psychologist by training. I teach at Cambridge College in Boston and work as a behavioral health lead for the Integrated Health Services for the Refugees at Lynn Community Health Center. And throughout my career, I worked in Armenia, Chernobyl, Chechnya, Kosovo, Liberia, Abkhazia, various NGOs. So there I felt inspired by so-called humanitarian miracle when uh, the whole international community comes together as one to assist the most vulnerable populations. And also there I observed the extremely high price for any kind of ethical indiscretions in the humanitarian context. Now, I guess the most obvious place to start off with is to get a grounding on what global mental health is and how it's defined. So global mental health work is described by its context. I offer this definition in my book on ethics for global mental health because this definition captures the essence of this work, namely helping people in complex emergencies when it is difficult to provide assistance for them and in low resource settings as well. So even now, when global mental health has gained recognition as a vital part of humanitarian action, it still remains in the process of defining and redefining its paradigm and the scope of the services. So what unites different disciplines is that we serve the most vulnerable population in the most difficult circumstances. And I define global mental health as a specialization of its dual identity, as mental health and as humanitarian work. So in this way, it allows to combine different disciplines, such as psychiatry, psychology, mental health counselors, psychosocial workers, advocates, medical anthropologists, and many others, and help them to work together 
to achieve a common mission and the goal, which is the reduction of suffering. What attracts people to working in the field of global mental health? It's a wonderful question. I'm still puzzled by that. I'm sure we can rationalize it in many various ways, but as one of my colleagues told me, it almost feels like we have no choice. So for a long time, mental health professionals felt compelled to use their skills, trainings to contribute and to help human suffering around the world. And only later, the realization came that we also need to take care of the quality of the work that we provide. This work obviously associated with risks, and it is important that global mental health providers need to be aware of that and do everything that they can to minimize these risks. I do feel a little bit guilty every time when I teach students and I see how their eyes are lightened up. Because I can imagine that when they do that, it can put a heavy emotional burden on their families as well. It's not only their decision. Your article explains that the historical perspective of global mental health helps to better understand how it has come to be what it is today. You say that although the humanitarian spirit has always drawn people to help those in greater need, the professional self-determination of global mental health can be mostly attributed to the globalization and professionalization of humanitarianism. What can you tell me about the history of global mental health and how it has become professionalized? So the global mental health has a brief but very dramatic history. It started in the 80s by mental health professionals who were globally minded, full of good intentions and lack skills or knowledge of what we are doing. So it's been driven by providers' interest and desire to help. In the 90s, we already observed the emergence of integrated modules to address complex needs, psychosocial and primary care models. And in the year 2000, we saw the growth and the diversification of programs that actually initially led to the quest for consistency and standards because it became obvious that if you want to work as actors of the humanitarian action, we need to be able to follow the humanitarian goals and operational guidelines. And increasingly complex nature of humanitarian crises demands globally oriented response. The time of individual heroes and superheroes has passed. This work requires a lot of resources and coordination, and only global community can respond efficiently. In the 2010 paper by Walker and others, it was suggested that the scale of humanitarian action already qualifies us for industry, which must operate professionally. It employs over 200,000 workers or volunteers and accounts for over 13 billion in spending each year. And it suggests that it cannot be driven by best intentions alone, especially in the healthcare. And this industry also requires professionalization, accountability, quality control, and ethics. So that is why it is very important for the professional associations to step up in providing the quality assurance, developing professional competencies and support for the global mental health workers. You mentioned in your writing that global mental health workers should prioritize their own safety. 
What safety concerns do people working in global mental health face? First of all, global mental health providers work in the places affected by humanitarian crises. So this place is not the safest place just by definition. But usually the agencies that help to deploy and organize the visits and the work, they prioritize the safety protocols. And that's a part of the professionalization of global mental health. That also comes with being part of the multidisciplinary humanitarian action. But there is another side to that. A part of being exposed to tremendous scale of human suffering and mortality can make people question the value of life and what their work is about and can lead to the significant burnout and survival guilt that can also result in the increased risk-taking and unsafe behaviors. So this existential despair, when it sets in, can truly increase risks in the workers. And I've heard on several occasions the mental health workers are saying to their clientele that if you die, I will die too. So it suggests that they become really identified and compassionate to people they serve. But it also means that they do not see themselves and their own safety as a priority. And this is a really big issue among humanitarian workers. And I found in my work that just a pure appeal for the self-care, which is a part of professional requirements in mental health, does not always work. Because when a person is so overwhelmed and feels so compelled to help at any cost to the people they serve. So the appeal to self-care, it just sounds a little bit ridiculous. And the best answer I got when I realized how it works was that when I worked in one of the disasters and I encouraged the workers who were doing surgery for days to take care of themselves. So the answer was, oh, sure. So in this kind of, you know, I sense that uh, response to me completely not understanding the context. And these feelings could be extremely powerful. And that is why I've been using two MEMS that can help to ground the workers who see too much of suffering and feel that their life has little value. And one is that I borrowed from the emergency response is that we should not multiply the victims. So joining the people whom you may not be able to help is not going to improve the situation. I know that it's extremely difficult decisions to make, but sometimes mental health workers do have to abandon their clients in case of the unsafe situation and increased security risks. And from what I can tell, this is probably the most traumatic experience out of the whole field work that has ever been reported to me. And the second motto that I've been using is that when we decide to go and do the field work, our life does not only belong to us. It somehow belongs to our families who trust us that we will take the best care of ourselves as we can. It also belongs to the agency that collected funds to send us to help other people. 
And if we are not taking good care and if we do not prioritize our safety, it can put at risk and jeopardize health provision and aid provision to other people. In this case, our unsafety, although it does not make any existential sense, but it may put more people at risk. That is one of the reasons why I strongly suggest to put safety imperative as ethical requirement for this kind of specialization and for this kind of work. Because when we are in the field, it is too easy to lose this sense of what's going on. For global mental health workers working on location, what support is available to them? So in 2015, the Antares Foundation found out that about 30% of field workers reported symptoms of PTSD after field assignment. And almost 70%, according to the Guardian Global Professional Development Network, report symptoms of depression, anxiety, and burnout. So there are a lot of factors that are affecting mental health of the field workers. Uh, Those are existential despair, compassion fatigue, loss of faith in humanity, a loss of meaning of work because you see how little you can change. And a lot of agencies, NGOs, have started developing the support systems for the field workers. For example, agencies such as Medicine and Frontiers have established system of the field supports. So the workers, before going to the field, they are being debriefed. There are peer supports while they are in the field, and then they get a debriefing. And if something happens while they are in the field that has significant potential for trauma, this stuff, they travel and provide emotional support on site. Obviously, it's not enough, and the only thing that I can say that these activities are gaining more and more priority, and sometimes global mental health workers are part of this collective international efforts. And this is also a big theme in the professionalization of humanitarian aid. You describe that people working within global mental health face difficult moral questions and ethical dilemmas to which there are often no good answers. What kind of questions and dilemmas are these workers being faced with? So the dilemmas that mental health providers face in the field sometimes have no good solutions. One of the absolutely moral crunching dilemma that many health care providers and global mental health workers face. It's a dilemma how to prioritize the needs of the people whom we can help, because obviously we cannot help everyone. So having to make this decision makes a really heavy emotional impact on all the professionals I have known. We cannot really measure suffering, and sometimes these decisions are based on the funders' preferences or organization guidelines, uh, organization that deploys us. So although it is really hard to come to terms why we are helping some and why we are not helping others, sometimes understanding the bigger picture and humanitarian priorities helps us to prioritize the values in this kind of unsolvable dilemmas. But in most cases, these dilemmas are not true dilemmas. They represent the conflict of underlying paradigms. 
for instance, what are the humanitarian priorities in a particular situation? Do we need really to focus on education or healthcare? It really depends on the context, whether we are dealing with the epidemic or post-conflict community recovery. That is why placing these dilemmas in the larger context of humanitarian work helps us to see the priorities of these values because these dilemmas are not solvable on the same level. We cannot say what value is more professional or what moral value is more moral. So that is why we engage the context to see what would be the best context-appropriate decision in this particular situation, which requires a lot of expertise and training and support. You write about working within moral frameworks as a way of grounding people who face such difficult dilemmas. I imagine that working within a moral framework would also help the global mental health worker who is facing difficult decisions, often without immediate supervision, and having a framework to work within would perhaps reduce the decision burden that they face. What led to the development of the ethical and moral frameworks within which global mental health workers act? So the humanitarian community has become aware about these difficulties of making decisions right on site in the field work when supervision opportunities and support connections are quite remote. And even if we are able to consult our supervisors, supervisors might be far away and not fully being aware of what's going on on the ground. And already in 1991, the Interdisciplinary Standing Committee created by United Nations General Assembly established the primary mechanism for integrating and coordinating of humanitarian assistance. And logically from that, it was important to establish the standards of our work and also the operational guidance. And the SPHERE project developed minimal standards in core areas of humanitarian assistance to improve its quality, where the main value for mental health and psychosocial supports was established as promoting self-help and resilience. And furthermore, I ask, meaning Interdisciplinary Standing Committee, in 2007, published the guidelines on mental health and psychosocial supports in emergency setting that offered very detailed operational guidance in implementing interventions and establishing their consistency in the situations of emergency when a lot of decisions has to be made based on the context. Furthermore, in 1994, the NGO Code of Conduct made steps to establishing standards for the organizations involved in humanitarian work. For instance, that our role is to reduce suffering, and they formulated that as the humanitarian imperative comes first. They also put some safeguards saying, for instance, that aid cannot be used to further a particular religious standpoint and that we hold ourselves accountable to both those we seek to assist and those from whom we accept resources. So these documents established the framework that we can use as a reference in making difficult ethical decisions. This is in addition to our professional ethics, and altogether it helps us 
to make the most effective ethical decisions in a very difficult and very fluid situation. You mentioned that decisions made when facing dilemmas will depend on the situation of the person making them and their role. You advocate for accountability to be held as a higher value in this situation. What is the importance of role and situation in making decisions? And could you explain the importance of the moral value of accountability? Let's take the situation of an epidemic. So sometimes the providers who work with the community have to make a decision if they see a person who shows some symptoms of possibly communicable disease. So whether to report this person to the health authorities or to continue working with the community. Any of these decisions has its advantages and disadvantages. Reporting this person to the health authorities means that it can help to curb spreading the epidemic. At the same time, the problem is that there's a price, and the price is that the trust of the community is going to be lost, and this provider is not going to be informed any farther about the possible cases. On the other hand, not reporting this patient to the health authority might help to strengthen the community supports, but then you might find yourself in a situation having to make these very difficult decisions. So this situation has very little solution in terms as a dilemma. However, I know that a lot of work has been done right now in terms of community education and community engagement to prevent finding ourselves in this kind of situation. Though the community is being informed that this is what we have to do as a health providers, even if we are doing only mental health work. Also, our role is going to be different if we are uh, working as a clinician or if we are working as a public health provider. So this is another example. I just recently wrote a chapter on sexual gender-based violence as warfare. And in one of African countries, and I'm not going to name this country for obvious reasons, the program has been established to support the victims of sexual gender-based violence. So these victims were receiving some kind of program assistance, maybe mental health counseling or psychiatric assistance. They also were receiving some food and some small stipend. Very quickly, the providers come to realize that the community became aware of that and has been using this program as a resource. Of course, the people are very impoverished and they were coming up with the stories to receive this small stipend. And the dilemma that they were facing was either to close down this program, because obviously some of the funds were misused, On the other hand, closing this program would mean that the true victims of sexual gender-based violence would receive no help and assistance whatsoever. An especially important question, they were what to do about the medications, but it's a kind of different story. It's just the example how difficult these decisions could be and how it is important to keep in mind the broader context in making any kind of decisions. What is the importance of accountability in such a situation? Accountability means that we have power that needs to be used responsibly. We are accountable both to the people that we serve and the funders who sponsor and organize our work. So communicating that to the 
organization and communicating it to the community and encouraging the community to participate in this decision-making would be an example of using accountability. Accountability means that the community or individuals that we serve need to be part of the decision-making and they need to be able to identify and prioritize their needs and they need to have some say in terms of how the programs are run and how they are conducted and what needs should be prioritized. And there is a saying that it's being used in the global mental health and other forms of humanitarian work. This is a saying that nothing about us without us. So basically, they need to participate at every moment, at every point, at every step in any decision-making that pertains to their well-being and meeting their needs. Now, this part of the article really caught my eye. It says... Wessels emphasized the importance of teaching global psychologists the ethical guidance and critical self-reflection that are essential in avoiding contextual insensitivity. And the picture the paper paints of someone who is contextually insensitive is of someone who perhaps does not fully grasp the full picture of what is appropriate when trying to help a community and may not grasp, for example, that culturally inappropriate interventions are being used or unsustainable interventions are being used or that the intervention has an excessive focus on victimhood which undermines the empowerment of the community. I was interested in this term contextual insensitivity. I was wondering if you could tell me more about that. So when talking about the context the contextual relevance becomes a priority. In the area of ethics, we are not talking about those who shamelessly take advantage of the suffering. We are talking about much more important and complicated issues when the people with the best intentions could inflict harm. And there are several practices that I have noticed throughout my career that demonstrated to me that there are some practices that inadvertently might have nothing wrong in themselves. However, in a particular context, they may appear insensitive. And those are disaster tourism. Disaster tourism has been described in the science fiction novel Vintage Season by Moore back in 1946 when the time travelers entertained themselves by going to the disaster sites right before this disaster occurred. So similarly, when major disaster or humanitarian crisis occurs, there is a phenomenon when a lot of health providers and maybe other volunteers, there is an even special word for that, they're flocking to the disaster site. And for a lot of humanitarian agencies, it is a big challenge how to keep these people away because any kind of efficient and beneficial assistance can happen only as a part of the whole system. And when I hear about the providers who just are full of enthusiasm and want just to go there and to help, they don't know how, they don't know what, they just want to be there and to show their compassion, I'm usually encouraging them to think what would be the best use for the funds they would have 
spend for this trip otherwise to buy some food or medications or just to spend it on travel. So this is a big issue and that's something that needs to be really addressed in any kind of trainings for global mental health work. Another is, I called it lacking a sense of stage. It comes from the theater paradigm when the actor needs at any time to be completely aware of how the actions and the words can be perceived by the spectators. And I've seen many situations when the providers, again, out of the best intentions, have been showing this contextual insensitivity to the issues And the well-known social media phenomenon that became a parody of this kind of contextual insensitivity in the humanitarian work has become a Barbie savior phenomenon, a project of Norwegian Students and Academics International Assistance Fund, which depicted the stage photos of a Barbie doll traveling to disaster sites in low-income countries and doing photo ops with victims, for instance, in the hospital setting. So the other examples of this contextual insensitivity would be playing God or making ourselves to engage into political decision-making. And we carry a lot of responsibility and a lot of power when we travel to the disaster sites. And sometimes our opinion could mean more than we can substantiate it. For example, sometimes mental health workers can be asked to prioritize clients for the evacuation. So I don't think that our mandate covers that and we should be in this role. Although I also understand that advocacy is a very important part of our work life. Another is humanitarian bubble. So the humanitarian bubble is a sense that when we travel, when we do field work with different agencies, we are somehow protected. If we rely on the rules and the guidelines, it's going to keep us safe, which is not always the case. But we somehow were trained to believe that if we do everything right, then nothing bad is going to happen to us. So that's one of the basic assumptions that goes back to the belief in a just world, which we need to be acutely aware of when we travel to the unsafe places. And just to go back, one of the inappropriate uses of methods that could stem from contextual insensitivity is the use of culturally inappropriate interventions. And even from what you describe, for example, with the Barbie savior phenomenon, speaks to the idea of people acting in a culturally insensitive manner, going into different countries and not acting in the most appropriate way. What can you say about cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness and the importance of these things within global mental health? So the cultural awareness is extremely important. Culture determines how we make meaning of the event. Culture also determines how this event is expressed. And in many ways, culture determines how the healing occurs. In my current project that I'm working on right now, I see that a culture has absolutely brilliant skills to support people in adversities when the adversity is routine, such as war, disaster, and many others. 
So, for instance, using the cultural skills or learning from the culture in recovery from loss or multiple loss, I could not find anything better in any kind of therapy. So culture provides this absolutely wonderful tools and skills. However, in not so ordinary circumstances, the culture may not be best equipped to assist people in recovery. An example is sexual gender-based violence, because this is a situation when the culture is not able to help the victims. Further on, the cultural tools can be used to re-victimize this person. So I know that we believe that Western culture is inferior towards traditional cultures. And I have great respect to traditional cultures. And I believe that being knowledgeable, being aware, and using that as a source of resilience is a wonderful tool. However, traditional cultures are not always attuned to the human rights issues. And as much as we want to rely on this culture, and we definitely need to know about it, our Western values can also something to offer, especially when the cultural sources of protection and supports cannot be as efficient like it happens in the situation of complex emergency. So I don't think that we always need to go along with the culture I don't think that also traditional culture is always something that we need to look up for. I know that Western culture is guilty in self-absorption, ethnocentrism, and many other sins. But also, I do believe that there is something good about that, and having this discussion is another example of that. And we thank Professor Elena Sharapanov for her time. Hami, what were your thoughts? It was quite interesting hearing Professor Shiripanov talk about the idea that there are people who will go to another country with the overall aim to help, I guess, following or surrounding a major disaster or humanitarian crisis, going with the belief that they'll make a difference, but actually, in fact, potentially causing more harm and burdening local area through use of resources or through making use of transportation that could be used in other ways. I I thought this was interesting because I suppose the general public are aware of this outside of the context of medicine with the classic image of the gap year student, a person going on a gap year, I guess, to a country to, well, stereotypically build houses, which actually are of a low quality and don't last very long and in fact cause more trouble than benefit in the long run. Of course, this is a, you know, a simplified stereotypical perception, a trope, if you will. And I appreciate that there are people that do contribute in valuable ways during a gap year or time abroad. Otherwise, I suppose we wouldn't even have the concept of humanitarian aid, would we? And I'm looking at this Instagram project that she mentioned, and it's available on Instagram.com slash Barbie Savior. And if you remember her talking about Barbie Savior, the account description is Barbie Savior. It's not about me, but it kind of is. It actually, <laughs> it's got mock-up pictures of Barbie in various worldwide locations. 
and they are the sort of typical locations you might associate with, as you mentioned, Hami, Gapia projects, but also in terms of relief efforts. Typically, with a suggestion that she's the only white person visiting a country of non-white people. And this is interesting because the term Barbie savior, similar to the term white savior, and within the Instagram description, which, just to be clear, Professor Sharapanov pointed us towards and is linked within the article. <laughs> so I am... <laughs> this is not my fault that I'm taking it in this direction. It links the Barbie savior concept to the white savior concept. It actually links to a podcast uh, within the Instagram as well called the White Savior Series. And that gets into a whole nother aspect to this, which is an element of, I don't know if she got into this about white saviors. I don't recall hearing it. No. But since the Barbie project mentions it, let's just define white saviors because that's... Is it something to do with like the remnants of colonialism and whatnot? It's literally just like the stereotype that white people are the saviors of the world in terms of like white guy goes to a place and learns the local customs and is better than everyone there at it and uses it to save the population that sort of stuff and yeah it is a way of justifying colonialism because actually it was comic relief that was accused of it interesting and this is something that was actually mentioned by the MP David Lammy when Stacey Dooley, the journalist and broadcaster, posted online a picture of herself holding a child from Uganda while working with Comic Relief. David Lammy criticised the journalist, Stacey Dooley, for reinforcing the white saviour stereotype. He said, The world does not need any more white saviours. As I've said before, this just perpetuates tired and unhelpful stereotypes. Let's instead promote voices from across the continent of Africa and have serious debate. So the term white saviour is sometimes, as Wikipedia notes, refers to a white person who acts to help non-white people with the help in some contexts perceived to be self-serving. The term has been associated with Africa and certain characters in film and television have been critiqued as white saviour figures, such as films like Avatar, Dances with Wolves. Yeah. Pocahontas? I think Pocahontas is not in there because James Smith is not really a saviour. Oh yeah, true, true. Good point. Oh, Gran Torino. Oh my god. Oh Gran god, that film. Uh I think what it does highlight is that there are lots of well-meaning people who see these crises around the world and do want to help in some way, but it highlights how important it is to go there in a supported fashion and within a planned out framework using humanitarian principles and with accountability in place as well to ensure that you don't fall into any of these pitfalls that can affect global mental health workers. I mean, I liked the bit about how it's important for some people to reconsider whether or not, in fact, they can provide more assistance remotely through financial contribution rather than on the ground. Definitely. I think what stuck out to me was just how difficult global mental health work can be. And I did ask 
Professor Sharapanov what could possibly make a person want to do this. And I do think it takes a very special kind of person and also someone who knows what they're getting into because they have to deal with these really difficult ethical considerations. And what's really important that this article highlights is that global mental health workers are supported and that they prioritize their own safety and their own self-care to avoid burnout and to avoid negative mental health effects of working in this extremely stressful area. Yes, I hate to use the, um, they always use this term induction, whichever hospital you work at, how in the aviation industry, in flight safety, there's the concept of putting it on your own oxygen mask before you help someone else to put on theirs. And I suppose with the immense stress and difficulties that one would face providing global mental health interventions in places of conflict and in places faced by humanitarian crises, there is sense in ensuring that you do take care of your needs such that you are able to provide more help for people and others in the long run. And actually looking back through Sharapanov's earlier work, including this chapter that she wrote called Ethics for Global Mental Health Specialists. She gets even deeper into aspects that can affect the mental health of global mental health workers. So she mentioned that such workers can experience existential despair and fatigue, which would make them question the meaning of their work and even their life and make them feel hopeless. There's also the aspect of survivor guilt, when you see people around you suffer or even die and then feel guilt. One specific example that she gives is how survivor guilt can lead to self-neglect. For example, a worker not being able to eat while others are starving. Workers could also feel, she says, that their own life is not as important when they start to see other people die. And that could make them more reckless and take more risks. But she also mentions how workers could experience rescue fantasies. And I guess this comes with the savior complex, which could lead to them violating personal and professional boundaries and could lead to them experiencing the illusion of omnipotence and being irreplaceable. And I guess that's something important to consider because any humanitarian aid needs to be sustainable, no? In medical school, in briefings that we had before our electives, we were told some of you may be in countries where you know that by giving what to you is a small amount of money to some individuals there while you're on placement, that you could feed a family for or feed some children for a great deal of time. However, the expectations that would arise from doing so would mean that anyone else who then comes on that elective may be facing undue pressure to provide that financial assistance. It's not exactly the same, but I guess it's similar in that you have to appreciate there's a limit to how much you can do. And if you cross boundaries, it not only has implications for yourself, but any other people providing aid and support. And then that also brings up again the guilt of that decision that you have to make, which is that you feel that you could do something to help someone in that short period of time, but then you have to weigh up helping one person versus sustainability of the project and it is one of these no good solutions sort of dilemmas, which without getting into what the solution should be, the problem is what that dilemma has as an impact on the worker. 
And that's how having a framework to work within can be helpful. So I think considering that this is the podcast for PJ Psych International, I think it's absolutely splendid that Professor Sharapanov actually talked a bit about the history of global mental health, something that I was entirely unaware of, but it's good to know when it emerged as a concept. Yeah, and also the meaning of it. And she clearly places humanitarian work and humanitarian principles at the center of global mental health. And global mental health is still an evolving profession. And so is the concept of humanitarianism. But it helps us see what the principles are behind this and what values should be guiding global mental health. One thing that Professor Shurapanov mentioned that did sound familiar to me was this idea of people who work in global mental health say that for them it's not really a choice, it's something that they feel they have to do. And I guess perhaps not on the same level, but that does remind me a lot of the concept of medicine in general being vocational. I suppose it makes a great deal of sense that individuals who are willing to work in what can be quite a challenging field must feel a degree of vocation. And therefore it's all the more important that because of that vocation that they are not taken advantage of or allow themselves to experience substantial psychological stress in the process of trying to alleviate that of others. The core principles are similar to medicine in general, where at its core you have that principle of primum non nocere, first do no harm. It's important when providing support in another country to not cause harm by your very presence. But perhaps medicine in general can also learn a lot from the concept of ensuring self-care and avoiding. And it's a term I've seen used, and I'm not sure if I entirely agree with the wording, but second victim, where through your experiences of providing healthcare for another, you yourself can experience harm and stress. The word victim is quite, uh, I guess, controversial, contentious. But there clearly is a lot of truth behind the concept of healthcare workers can and do go through a lot. And it's important for themselves and in a sense for healthcare in general and the sustainability of it all, that they do take care of their own needs. Totally. And accountability was crucial to this article. And a big takeaway for me is how Professor Sharapanov talks about how ethical guidance plays an essential role in ensuring accountability and flagging unethical practices within global mental health. Because one thing that's very clear from what's been described is that there is a potential for a power imbalance within global mental health between the local population and the aid workers. And that could get manipulated or exploited, resulting in exploitation of the vulnerable. And it's useful to have a framework which keeps that in check as far as possible. And Professor Sharapanov does note that the transgression of ethical values undermines the spirit of humanitarianism and the image of the profession and drastically affects the ability of agencies to respond to survivors' needs. And we once again thank Elena Sharapanov for joining us to discuss this article, which you can find in the November issue of the BJ Psych International. Thank you for listening to us, and please join us again for more discussion on the journal. I have been Sachin Shah. And I have been Hamilton Morin. Goodbye.
Thank you for listening to this BJ Sack International podcast. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at the BJ Psych. To listen to more podcasts from the BJ Psych Journal portfolio, visit us on SoundCloud or search for us online.